There are dire warnings that New South Wales will be hit by increasingly extreme weather. 2015 was the hottest year since climate records began. Your show this July was the single hottest month in recorded history. Australia swallowed through its hottest spring on record. Climate change is now affecting every country on every continent. The rate that's a great concern. And what do you put that rate down to? Oh, it's human activity. We have everything we need. Some still doubt that we have the will to act. But I say the will to act is itself a renewable resource. Hello and welcome to Climactic, a podcast on the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasters from across the range of the climate communities of Australia and New Zealand. Every week on Climactic, rain or shine, we either produce or feature an episode of a climate-engaged podcast. This could be from one of the shows on the Climactic Collective or beyond, and you'll always find a link to the show we're featuring at the top of the show notes. My name is Mark, and I'm the publisher of the Climactic Collective and of this show. And if you ever have any questions, I'm always reachable at hello at climactic.fm. I'm in Tamaki Makoto, Auckland, New Zealand, Aotearoa and I pay my respects to the iwi of Tamaki Makoto and acknowledge their shared sovereignty over this land as enshrined in Tetsuriti, the Treaty of Waitangi. Hello and welcome to Climactic, the flagship podcast of the Climactic Collective, a group of independent podcasts all covering the climate crisis. As I record this, it's Friday the 24th of December, Christmas Eve, And what I'm bringing you today is a two-parter, which myself and four other podcasters prepared as a panel for the Nonfiction Now conference, which has been going for nearly 20 years, and it's a place where nonfiction storytellers, documentarians, academics gather and talk about the craft of telling stories. True stories. Nonfiction. And I know from being a podcast listener for over half my life that at this time of year, you tend to get holiday recaps, best ofs, extra bits put together from shows, and that's all well and good. But I've decided to do something different this year and give you content, give you potentially denser content than you normally get. Because I figure over the holidays, you might have a little bit of extra bandwidth, or if you are listening over the holidays, it might mean you're potentially more interested in being a climate-engaged podcaster than the average audience would be during the year. And because, after all, who but podcast superfans are listening over the holidays? I know I always was. So this all gets pretty introduced, what this panel is about, when I start playing it. But I just want to say quickly, here we are at the end of 2021, somehow, miraculously. Looking forward to a different 2022, hopefully. Can't say yet whether it'll be better or worse. But we've got one less year now to get to carbon neutrality, to get to carbon negative status, to really engage with and solve the climate crisis. So what we do here is tell stories using audio about climate. And if that's of interest to you, you're going to love this two-part episode. So happy holidays to you. Enjoy. And if this does inspire you and you want to get involved in some way, please don't hesitate to reach out. I'm at hello at climactic.fm. Okay, until 20, take two. Take care of each other and enjoy.
Hello and welcome. The mission of Nonfiction Now, as expressed by the University of Arizona during their 2018 hosting of the event, is Nonfiction Now is unique in being neither a conventional academic conference nor a writer's festival, but rather a conversation among peers, from well-established writers and artists to those just starting out. And this panel is just that, a range of practitioners, from the professional to the passionate hobbyist, in a medium that, while not brand new, is the result of technology younger than all of our panelists, and which is not yet quite solidified. From the true crime wave to the spree of corporate acquisitions, podcasting has shown that it's not going anywhere as a medium, that its blend of radio production inputs, all but free distribution, and on-demand availability is a good fit for our day and age. This panel includes the makers of climate-engaged podcasts, using the medium of podcasting to tackle the world's foundational crisis, climate change. You'll first hear from each of these creators in turn about their work and process as we took turns hosting each other, using those interviewing skills we've developed from our podcasting. And then a roundtable, our own mini hui, where we engage on a set of questions and with each other's answers to them. Thank you for joining us for this chat about using podcasting for climate engagement. Let's begin. Hey, I'm Jess. I'm Ash. And we're two mates on a mission to do something about this climate crisis. 90% of people in Australia want stronger action on climate. Get, get going, 90%. That, that's a lot. Like, go. So we knocked on Greenpeace's door. What a horn. We found out what we should do. But this is one way that you can directly change the system. And we did it. Together. Yeah, we can get the pens and pencils out. Ah, uh, yes. Oh my gosh, is this... Is this and now Ash and I feel heaps better. Solar panels save the world. So please subscribe to Heaps Better wherever you get your podcasts. And come with us on a journey from climate anxiety to climate action. I'm Because trying to save the planet is heaps better together. <laughs> Three, two, one. And we're on. Well, thank you, Jess and Ash. We're here to chat about you guys and about Heaps Better, the podcast that you both brilliantly put together. Um, so without further ado, I think we just launch into the first question. I'm curious, how did Heaps Better come about? And how did Greenpeace get involved? Well, Jess and I uh, first started talking about making a podcast after I had posted during the bushfires in a, maybe a lot of distress about how little action was been taken by the government and what could we do and trying to talk about this idea of maybe making a spreadsheet featuring all of the things that you could do and how long they take and how much they might cost you if there is any cost and like trying to make it as frictionless as people for people to do those actions as possible. So and it initially started with this idea of a, of a spreadsheet, but then Jess and I met up and realized that our powers are not in spreadsheet making. Our powers are in podcasting. Um, and so then we started talking with AudioCraft and Jess is, Jess is more uh, entrenched in the AudioCraft front. I've been working with them in a freelance capacity for a while, but she's a producer with them. So I'll let you take away the, the way we got involved with Greenpeace. 
So, so AudioCraft's a production company, product, podcast production company that I work with and they'd already been speaking with Greenpeace about working out some way of doing a, a podcast about climate action and I think it all just timed really perfectly. Uh, but what I think what Ash and I were feeling was that really wild anxiety of January 2020 in, in Australia. We're in Sydney and it was blanketed with bushfire smoke and we just had that – it was that feeling of like this is – really desperate and there seems to be a lot of inaction and what can pe- what can people like us do what do we do with our time what do we do with our money and you have a google of it and or you know you, you get so much advice so i think it was trying to combat this feeling of of maybe futility and just a, a real desperate need to put this um anxiety or this this will to do something into action but find out the most practical ways that we could do it just as people yeah, and a lot of our friends are in the same boat. Everyone was wanting to do something but overwhelmed and didn't really have any kind of roadmap. And so we approached people who did have a roadmap and did have a strategy. So Greenpeace were incredible like that. They, I think they liked the idea of um, not, you know, normal people, everyday people who weren't in the climate movement and climate engagement movement, climate policy, climate business, whatever it was, um, you know, we're, we're in the creative industries. We met at a community radio station, Ash and I, years, years ago. They like the idea of that message of being like, okay, what can everyday people, like how can we get involved and how can we break down some of this maybe jargon or, or confusing science stats policy? Um, and then they were incredible because they just opened the door to us and let us into their research and matched us up with a whole lot of experts in their team and helped us really understand I mean, like I said, the keep cup thing before, one of the first things was they were like, no, no, guys, you're going to be thinking of collective action and systemic change. And we were like, I remember we talked so much about the idea of the keep cup being so much guilt going into this like little thing like, you know, the coffee cups. And that's that so much about individual, so much pressure is put on, consum- on like us as consumers and individuals to be doing the right thing rather than these businesses or, you know, these systems that are not set up right and so there's all this guilt that goes into something as simple as recycling or a plastic bag or a keep cup and so they were just they were really fantastic in in actually helping us to understand how they as an organization work and how this kind of bigger systemic change and collective action stuff works and it also made it a much more positive experience to not be able to um you know go through each episode with a focus on almost like blaming people and changing people's actions in the day to day um, in a way that was kind of like a big ask for people to, you know, have really significant behavioral change that doesn't seem very sexy or exciting. Whereas what we actually got to with the podcast through working with them through their strategy and through all the research is actions that are, have a bit more of a, a massive impact. And a lot of them are things that you can just do once and then you'll create a real significant ongoing impact that is going to last forever and is in a lot of cases irreversible. So, Yeah. It's the interesting thing about the Keep Cup um, kind of – I don't know if you guys are feeling the same way, but I hear the Keep Cup conversation come up a lot. But I'm like, the Keep Cup is still good to use. It's a symbol. That's what I'm trying to say. Yeah. Um, so that spreadsheet that you guys made, that, that did many of the kind of things that you had plotted down, that was kind of – became the framework for Heaps Better or did that kind of get thrown out the window and Greenpeace gave you a whole new lease on what you were going to do with the pod? Some of the things were on there because I think that we were all getting a bit more of a sense that um, changing our finances and stuff like that can can have an impact because that's being pushed by by a lot of different people. 
Um, but a lot of things just fell down the to-do list because I had more of a focus on on kind of consumer behavioral change. And at the end of the day, working with Greenpeace on this podcast and knowing what we know through their research and through their extremely knowledgeable and multifaceted team, um, it just made it clear that it, it was never going to be a worthwhile podcast for anyone to to listen to if it wasn't going to focus on systemic change and how to get involved in that because that's something that we can see doesn't really exist. Maybe we're blind to it in Australia and it does exist elsewhere out there, but we knew that we were going to have a short run for our first season and we wanted to sort of fill it up with as much uh, actionable and kind of like, you know, the the first things you should do that have the biggest impact. And now we're going to tell you what that impact would be. And this is how that impact can grow. And this is how you are powerful so that people could, rather than being like, oh, I feel bad. I want to change what I'm doing. How can I do better? They can just be like, whoa, that's such bang for your buck. That's such win for your minute. If I do that and it takes me five to 10 minutes, or if I do that in a, in a you know, takes me maybe like a, a breakfast with a friend to accomplish that, then I've made so much progress so quickly. And we wanted it also to be to be fun and to be something that you could do socially because that I think gives it gives the whole kind of set of actions ability to grow and be shared and to be demystified. And that was I mean it goes back to the original idea of making a spreadsheet is just kind of removing friction and confusion and overwhelm from the process of getting things done. And so the whole first series follows things in a certain order um, that allows you to really kind of uh, take orderly steps towards basically by the end of the first series, once if you've done the things that you were able to do, you should be feeling very freaking proud of yourself, you know, and feeling very good about your impact because the impact is is clear and, and tangible and we know that it makes a difference and we have experts like Simon Holmes Accord and, you know, financial experts and people from market forces and, you know, all these great people who are able to quantify that impact. So it, it becomes a lot more exciting because you don't feel like you're just kind of like, you know, dropping a, a drip in the ocean and being like, I'm doing my bit, you know, you actually feel like you're really, and then, and then you feel excited to talk about it because it's cool to know these things, you know, you see how the world works. Ash, you, the, like one of the biggest things you said just then was the breakfast with a friend, which for us was, was part of maybe the thing that, that stayed with us from the spreadsheet was that we wanted to have a way of understanding all this stuff. And we were basically were like, someone just needs to make this really simple and give us a straight, simple answer so that we can share it with all our friends and do it with all our friends. And we kind of hatched this idea over a series of um, coffee or some cocktails <laughs> pre-lockdown, you know, our last, our last espresso quarantini, I think it was. But, but it was this, this, this sense of when we, do these things with people like us and with our friends, it is so much more achievable because you can egg each other on and you can help break things down and like you can split up the work of, re you know, you research this, you you bring this this idea to the table and we'll come together and do it um, together. And it's it's even that, those kind of collective stories that whether it's just a bunch of mates um, at a pub or at a cafe or at somebody's house for breakfast um, or all the parents from the school group like the Albert Park Kinder Sustainable School Network 
when people come together and have that group to that and that community to to help give you some momentum then you can actually get some really serious stuff done even even if it's just making a podcast <laughs> you know ash you spoke about the the most beneficial part for you was um actually you were worried that it was going to be quite stressful going into it um but you found that digging into it and digging into the science and speaking to all these amazing people actually was most um uplifting that was like the most kind of rejuvenating part of it um I'm curious just to round off what has been the best nugget of wisdom that you've both learnt through making the pod totally and I feel like maybe for me it was the interview we did with Annie Leonard who's the CEO of Greenpeace USA and she's phenomenal oh my gosh just such a hero but the way that she talked about the fact that our politicians work for us made it really land for me for the first time because I think that we can sort of like uh, maybe trust their authority and feel like, you know, uh, they're, they're maybe maybe working for us, but they're kind of working for the fossil fuel companies in Australia. And the way that she framed it made me feel like we really do have a right to ask for a lot more. And if it's going to be... Uh, maybe somehow radical the way that we do that, it's valid. <laughs> it's our planet, you know? So that really, that stuck out to me. I think it's when Simon Holmes Accord put, showed us this graph that he'd made of shutting down, the impact of shutting down one coal station being as powerful as shutting down our entire domestic aviation industry in terms of um, emissions reductions. And the way that he put that in a visual way and was like, we can do this. You know, there's already one that's shut down, you know, shut down just the other day from a bunch of community action. So, you know, it's it was something like that that, that I think made it seem how rather than trying to change an entire industry, just just ending this one is <laughs> is the most efficient. Nice to hear how it started and how you guys got your fingers dirty and you created an amazing pod that I've listened to and I've loved. Um, you did such a great job. And bringing in the comedy and, and obviously your friendship was so fun to listen to. I feel like I know you both really well just from listening to the pod and, and going on that journey with you. And, and like you said, playing the fool, it's, it's, it's so, it makes it so much more accessible to everyone. Um, so I think, yeah, you guys really nailed it. And I hope you make another pod together, Thank another you. season yeah, two we've, or something. Yeah, we're talking about it, but we'll see if Greenpeace has capacity over the next however so long, they're doing many things. There's many campaigns. So a podcast feels like a bit of a luxury, even if it is a climate podcast. Thanks so much for chatting with us. It was so great. Hello and welcome to The Nature Between Us, a podcast for all your eco-inquiries and musings. My name is Tessa and I'll be your host. I'm an Aussie actress, a voiceover artist and an environmental master's student. First of all, thanks for tuning in. It's super cool to have you joining me. Tessa, that jazzy intro to your show that, that you love, you're on tape as loving it and you never want to change it. Why is that there and um, what do you love about it? Um, I have to be honest. I, when I first made my podcast, I was like, what? Everyone has a cool intro song. And um, I went to a website that, had, that gave free music. And I was like, 
I like something that's going to be kind of like wake you up. Um, and it was like the, one of the first songs that I found on this website that gave out free royalty, like royalty free music. And it just said big jazz or it had some really funny name. And I was like, that looks like, you know, that looks like it could be a good song. And I just picked it and then I fell in love with it. And you're right. I'm very unapologetic about it. Every episode in season one of the pod, it just, it like, I love it even more. And I joke about how I'm just going to slowly put more and more of it in and it, there'll be no podcast. It'll just be the jazzy intro song. <laughs> a woman named Gretchen Miller, who's actually finishing off a PhD to become a like doctor in podcasting <laughs> about environmental storytelling, which is, it's cool that we're at that point. Um, in her thesis, which is, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading, it's going to be out soon, she talks a lot about um, how using natural sounds and the sounds of like, the natural world in, in, you know, podcasts is one place to put them, but like just exposing people to sounds from the natural world kind of makes us connect to it more and have more of a relationship and a care for the natural world. And I'm kind of curious about if you agree with that sort of thesis and if you could if you would would you add more natural sounds into the podcast with the goal of it being sort of reconnecting people with the natural world first of all i 100 percent agree with that thesis um one of my favorite podcasts is off track with um ann jones i think and um it's amazing and they they're they're like half hour episodes and there's a lot of nature sounds a lot of birds a lot of whales a lot of everything so many beautiful amazing sounds and and it really immerses you straight away in the world of what we're you know what the episode's about um and I think the first couple of episodes I ever listened to of that podcast was about lyrebirds and so of course the lyrebird has such an incredible call and it's so fluid and changes and mimics and everything so First of all, yes, I would 100%, having fallen in love with off-tracks, um, I would love to include more noises and, and nature sounds and, and everything. Um, it would just be a matter of me getting better at editing and hopefully Laura can help me with that. <laughs> um, or, you know, you know, people maybe can send in some, some like amazing recordings or I could go out in the field and capture them myself. Um, but, yeah, I, I, I think it's a... It's a really beautiful and easy way to immerse yourself in nature and remind yourself because especially a lot of us live in urban spaces where we don't often hear the sounds of nature beyond a crow or a magpie. It's really something that I agree with Gretchen that can immerse and connect people with nature. So, yeah. So you're an environmental master's student. That's one, one of the hats you wear, but of course you're also in film and television, you're in the entertainment industry, and I'm curious from the environmental student side, how many of the people you had on in your first season, maybe how many people you're going to have on in your, your future seasons, is um, how many of those people you met or learned of through your, your course? Mostly, I would say no one really I met through my course, um, but... Definitely what I was learning through my course sparked curiosity that I wanted to focus on in future. So then I would kind of like, you know, I did a subject on um, urban planning and kind of, and then I was like, oh, this would be great to talk to someone about sustainable cities. And of course, 
my partner um, knew Jess and was like, Jess Miller would be great. And I was like, yes, she would be amazing if she ever agreed to it. And, of course, I'm so thankful that she did because it's one of my favourite episodes. Um, so, yeah, I can definitely say that my, my degree and studying and being actively, like, uh, exposed to different topics and different kind of conversations and, and you know, all of that um, sparked my curiosity and, and fed as a lot of inspiration for a, a number of the topics um, but in terms of actually connecting with the with the uh, the guests, um, that was kind of more independently done with yeah me searching them out or um, someone saying oh you know who would be great would be this person you should try you know you know how it goes with finding guests you just you just shoot out an email and hopefully they reply or yeah they call it planting seeds planting <laughs> just seeds spread them yes far and wide and see yeah. what <laughs> yes. Uh, have any of those come from your other work in, in you know, acting and in the lands of TV and film? They haven't. No, most of them kind of come from all over. Yeah. Social media is a great tool. I think quite a few I reached out to on Instagram and just said, hey, I'm making a podcast and I hope, you know, you'd be interested, but I totally understand if you have way better things to do than talk to me about <laughs> environmental issues. Um, but everyone is so generous and lovely and giving. And, yeah, I've been really, really lucky with um, receiving positive uh, feedback and, and excitement to be involved. So, yeah. I'm really glad I asked that question because it's just it's very – interesting to hear that yeah you know, like your method of going about getting guests is the same way that mine was and every other podcast right now and it's like oh you know we kind of have this picture that you know someone who's on tv can just oh, no. you know no, no, have no. a rolodex and people will line no up it's the it's same like, no, you just yeah you write a long message way. and you hope that they read it and <laughs> yep. yeah <laughs> like did you have like a person in mind or a, a type of person in mind for who you thought this podcast was for. Didn't have a specific person, but I did kind of have an idea of who I was trying to reach. And it's not a it's not an age group or, you know, any sort of like specific demographic. It is really just that person who wants to know more but doesn't know how to go about that. And I know that so many podcasts are trying to reach that same person. Um, which is great and that's why they all should exist and we all should listen to them. But I suppose, yeah, that person that that maybe would not – that maybe would, like, be shy about asking the, 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 the you know, the kind of entry-level questions that wants to just be like, I don't really get climate change or, like, I don't really understand what fracking is. And then to find an episode of The Nature Between Us that's all about fracking, um, which I haven't done yet but would be great to, you know, just the breaks it down and, um, in a kind of, yeah, like an easy to digest way. So I guess, yeah, the person, the person that wants to know more and wants to kind of be educated, but not be filled, made to feel guilty about their life because, you know, I, I do worry that sometimes like that kind of like information dump can be quite, um, off-putting in a way. So back to basics, break it down make things very relatable and uh there's it's remarkable the lack of jargon and acronyms and insider talk in your show it's very like 
you you step into the role for your guest as the friend at the barbecue who's very interested in what you're doing, what you've got to say, but has no idea about what they do. So there's no like, so do you know this uh, this this term? No. <laughs> Explain it to me like I know nothing. Uh, you uh, hypothetically, you know, s someone who's willing to ask the, you know, the the head weather reporter for the ABC morning show, what a cloud is that kind of <laughs> real story. What's, what's a moment from making the show that looking back on it, that's meant a lot to you that like, it's not to put it in these terms, essentially, you don't have to answer it in these terms, but for me, I'd be like, what's the most value you've gotten out of making the show? Ah. Uh. My answer is just going to be like literally everyone that I speak to. I can't pinpoint one moment that's more of more value than any other. Like every guest I've learned so much from and I've had such an enjoyable time speaking to them about the topic that they're specializing in. I really can't. I'm sorry, Mark. I can't. I can't even like pick one moment. They're all, everyone, anytime anyone agrees to come on the podcast, I'm like, oh, thank you. <laughs> and then they speak to me and they have so much to share. It's, yeah, everything's so, so valuable. Life in the 2020s is different. There's more masks. Hey guys, what's up? You different options for DIY at home masks. Less plane travel, more fires, more smoke, more coastal erosion. Of course, the sand does come and go. But again, I've never seen it like this before, not in my lifetime. Not enough water in some places and too much in others. A woman's been rescued from a tree and a train derailed as parts of the state continue to be battered by wild What's weather. a person to do in a world with an already changed climate? Did I say already changed? Yeah, and on track for much more change. Shifting baseline syndrome, a phenomenon of lowered expectations in which each generation regards a progressively poorer natural world as normal. In fact, the only thing we know for certain about the future is that our already weird present is just the beginning. We are through the looking glass. The shows in the Climactic Collective are your guide, created by fellow travelers but without feeling the need to constantly explain the greenhouse effect. Greenhouse gases are a bit like a doona. So check out Climactic.fm and our flagship podcast, Climactic, to get involved and engaged with the climate crisis. Because these are climactic times, and everything has changed. Mark, I kind of want to get to your origin story first, because I know that you have been a long-term podcast consumer in a big way. And I'm just wondering how that ties in with your transition into actually creating and what was your first project when you started creating podcasts? Yeah, that, that is the story. Just, you know, podcast nerd, like an absolute <laughs> fanboy. You just never saw me as a kid without headphones on. Like, mm -hmm. that was my go-to thing. Like, like my parents and like you know, family members would joke of like you know they'd see my ears and they're like oh good proof they exist because we had no idea what was under there because you look like Maybe you do now like, with headphones on exactly this, <laughs> this is Mark in his native environment um, <laughs> yeah. so like uh, for for me having sort of grown up with this stuff there was you know it's like the classic story of like you know the the kid who's really into film and then they find out that oh wow they can go to film school and they can studied this stuff and they too can learn how to make it. But like, for me, I didn't go that path of going into audio engineering. I didn't like, 
I was I wasn't in one place very long as a kid growing up, so I didn't have the standard route of get involved in a local community radio station or a college radio station. Um, it was like only my very late teens that a friend had a slot on a, a student radio here in, in Auckland, New Zealand, and um, I was going along and like, you know, jumping on the graveyard radio shift and learning how to speak into a mic and thinking, oh, this is this is fun. I'll maybe do more of this one day. But it wasn't until um, my my wife and I, now wife, um, we moved over to China and we were teaching English over there for a couple of years. And it was over there, I'm like, I'm exposed to so many just cool stories and like just so much mm-hmm. sort of, like, life is happening here in such a different way than I've ever experienced before. And my wife started vlogging about it. And I was like, oh, I should really start a podcast. So I like started looking into it, and then I realized how hard it is to distribute a podcast from China because ah. of the Great Firewall, and like there's actually yeah, right. constraints. It's actually really difficult. So I decided not to, and I instead picked it up when we moved to the UK in uh, 2016. And it was all, you know, Brexit was all in the works, and everyone was like in a furor about the EU. And I'm just like, I'm a hero. I'm here as an American Kiwi kid. And I don't know anything about the EU or the UK or this common market or the history of all this stuff. So I um, was like, I'll, I'll, I'll do a, a series about this as an excuse to talk to people. Like, I, I was straight away like, I'm not going to make a podcast for anyone but myself. And the making of the podcast is just an excuse to, to find out more about a thing I'm interested in. Yeah. Um, and it was called Me and You, EU. And uh, it was... Interesting. It'll never see the light of day. It's now deleted. It's not anywhere on the internet. So, like, I, I had an experience of making, like, six or seven episodes of this thing and then being like, okay, I learned a lot. Delete. Okay, that's interesting. <laughs> you can do that. I, I love that you can. And, like, it, it's not still hanging around. I shouldn't, you know, say that so uh, assertively in case someone does manage to drag it out of a hard drive or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, but that's interesting because so, it sounds like you started right from the start looking at social political issues. Um, and, of course, in the thick of Brexit and all of that stuff, that was an obvious choice. But you obviously have an interest in those topics as well. It was what was going on in those headphones I was wearing all the time. Mm-hmm. Um, just seven or eight hours a day of politics and sort of geopolitical stuff, um, you know, being 2016 – that year especially was like my high watermark for podcast consumption. It was honestly, I could name every politics show from New York times. Um, I forget the Ch- Chicago sometimes had, had a really good podcast as well. Uh, five thirty-eight, the, the data analytics guys, uh, Washington post, of course, all the, the UK newspapers are putting out politics podcasts at this time because there was so much to talk about. So I was like trying to listen across the spectrum in a way that like, I found that I can listen to people I disagree with quite quite easily. I can even find sometimes them to be persuasive and at least explaining their perspective, but I can't read it. Like, I can't read, hmm. a, you know, uh, a politics rag. That's interesting. Without getting upset. But yeah, if someone's telling me why they feel something, I'm like, okay. It's more like you're down at the pub and they're just, like, telling you their opinion and it feels more like an opinion than someone writing it down permanently for all time on the written page is some 
<laughs> Precisely. Uh, yeah. the, the, the need to kind of be unequivocal or have a, such a strong assertive statement in writing. Whereas, like, if you're speaking to somebody, you can be like, well, I don't, I'm not sure exactly this is how I feel, but here's a hypothetical. Yeah. Whereas that's so hard to write. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And so when did you start focusing on the climate and when did it crystallize for you as the topic that you really wanted to hone in on? Yeah, it was later than that. Um, and talking to, to sort of climate folks a lot since then, I realized that I came into this very, very much later in my life. Um, climate anxiety and worries. And, you know, it was, it was looked down on in like my kind of family setting, like you saw uh, the lefties and the greenies and, yeah. Uh, <laughs> Um, so like, I, I thought, you know, pressing issues were potential conflicts between nation states and food security and you know, politics, like, like the very much the Kissinger kind of school of like, what, what's, what what's are the important. flaws with the world? Yeah. What's important. Mm. Um, so it was arriving in Melbourne getting a job at like a hospitality um, like a software company that was selling point of sale software for, for Hospo. And I was like going along to this, I was, I was presenting for the company at a trade show and I got talking to a sustainability consultant and they just framed it so well for me within this like 10 minute conversation of like, did you know that the hospitality industry puts out this much food waste, which is equivalent to this many cars on the road worth of methane? And I was just wow. like, Oh, this isn't something that's happening over there. This is actively part of the industry I'm in. And I'd, I'd been so relieved to arrive in the UK, much less Melbourne, after two years living in China, where I was like witnessing a, a, a post-apocalypse environmental situation where you've got stagnant rivers and, and dead mm. fish. And like, there's, you, I understand what an oceanic dead zone is. I've seen one very small in, mm. in the lake that was in the city I lived in. You'd go for a swim. If you're brave, you'd smell very bad for a couple of days after. And you just like, like swim past dead turtles. They're just yeah. bobbing in this lake. And you're just like, um, so after leaving that mm. scene, I was like, oh, it's so much better that the environment's just good here and everything's fine. <laughs> <laughs> so then I, then I went down the rabbit hole and I just started talking yeah. to people who knew a lot more than me and had been involved for a lot, lot longer than me and then by just saying I'm here to learn a lot of doors opened um, to the extent yeah. that I was invited you know, I, was, I was told hey you should apply to go to Climate Reality in 2019 which is the Al Gore group so I did and went to Brisbane for little did we know at the time it was the last big Climate Reality event in person before all this happened it was 800 mm -hmm. people in a room you know, just getting to meet Mike Cannon Brooks and Simon Holmes of Court and all like, you know, just the, the mayor of um, the Torres Strait Islands and just like, oh, okay, this whole movement and this whole space, it's, it's just people. And I've now met these people and pressed the flesh and it's like, okay, this isn't inscrutable. <laughs> this is very, very knowable and human and welcoming yeah. if, uh, if you get a good on-ramp into it. Yeah, very interesting. And so how did that lead to what's now the Climactic Network? And why did you think, I mean, for a start, what is a podcast network? Because a lot of people watching this might not know. And um, why did you want to make one? What did you think it would help achieve? So after I'd started Climactic, which is one, one podcast feed where myself and a co-host 
were just interviewing everyday people about how they felt about climate change and what they were doing about it, not trying to talk to the leaders, not trying to talk to the big names in the space, just mm-hmm. everyday folks. Um, I came across a lot of other people who wanted to create content as well and had a specific point of view and a cool intersection with things. So we had a, a psychologist who was uh, active with Psychology for a Safe Climate, which is a group of working psychologists and psychotherapists who are specifically like looking at how they can work on climate grief and climate topics. And I was like, well, you should have a podcast. And like, I've been thinking a lot about that, but I don't know where I'd start. And I said, well, I've got this feed. Why don't you just, well, first of all, let me help you make a few episodes, see if it's for you. And then you can put it out here on this feed. And then it became, well, why don't we have more than one show, which has like already was a grab bag of me and my co-host doing episodes about what we were interested in. That became three, four, five hosts very quickly as Climactic took on more things, and then mm-hmm. I got a job at a big uh, enterprise podcast host, basically like a book publisher, um, where like all of a sudden, me being a publisher of more than one show and running a network, which I'll explain in just a second, was uh, a good thing for me professionally in my job, and they basically just they gave us not to quote Fight Club to a great audience of nonfiction storytellers, but like we had corporate backing. Uh, we got, you know, in-kind support. So a podcast network in a nutshell is, so you've got one podcast and there's a lot of jobs that go into running that show, much less scaling it up. And a podcast network is just a simply economies of scale for the jobs that can be done by one person across multiple shows rather than each show having to have a different person do that role. Um, What those roles are, what the shows need depend on the shows. So if the show is selling advertising, there can be one person at the network who sells advertising space on those shows across the network. Um, What it means in terms of climactic is simply I kind of coordinate things and herd cats. I um, I help shows... (laughs) promote on each other's shows. I help them come up with a good workflow for how to how to publish, how to check their analytics and understand what's working and what's not, and um, basically to centralize a lot of the tools and resources that people need to start a show. Um, so is it just than... you mostly doing all that stuff, or do you have other people with different roles within the Climactic Network now? It's the, the, the team is contracted and grown... The team has grown and contracted over time. Uh, currently, there's uh, a couple of the people who've helped me out with like guest publishing the the Climactic show, which is basically a curation of what's going on within the network. What that means is every week we have an, a new episode out, but selecting what that episode's going to be from the shows on the network, introducing it, getting approval, finding out how to, you know, like, when to feature something at the right time for something that might be going on, relevant in the news. A couple members of the team have helped me out with that uh, guest producing role recently, which is my first time actually stepping back from being the one to publish a show every week uh, since April 2018. So I realized that was going on three and a half years until I'd since I'd last had a break from publishing a weekly show, which is that's crazy. pretty hectic. That's a lot. Yeah, it just it became so normal. It just like became an hour of my Saturday of like, oh, okay, it's time to like find an episode and record an intro. And I got good at doing it fast, but it's delightful to wake up and actually like, ah, oh, 
what's going to be out today? I don't know. It's going to be a surprise. It was yeah. really good. Um, we've had someone writing a newsletter, which has been really good. They've just recently had to step back. So it's feeling like 2022 is going to be like a new phase for Climatic where you have to kind of rebuild and also come at it with maybe some fresh intentionality because three years ago there wasn't a lot of climate podcasts. Now there is. So what are we doing other than just being a collection of climate podcasts? Because that's no longer unique or potentially valuable. Like, is it that these are particularly good climate podcasts? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Should should that be it? <laughs> and also, you started the network while you were living in Australia, and now you've moved back to New Zealand. And I know that for a while there, it was largely focused on Australian climate podcasts. And I imagine that would also be changing now that you're back in New Zealand and you're networking with different people and, you know. Not a lot of networking locally happening in the last couple of months because of lockdown, yeah. but it's definitely, it definitely was before we were starting to build momentum. We definitely will be after, but honestly, my, my big hairy audacious goal for this is to have uh, shows in Australia, in New Zealand, in Fiji, in Tonga, in Samoa. and it's, So the Pacific region. Absolutely. So. Yeah. That's that's my name. Pan Pacific. Pan Pacific is the the goal and the scope of what I'd love to achieve. Welcome to Saltgrass, a show about how local communities can engage with the climate crisis at a grassroots level. My name is Ali Hanley. In this episode, I'm speaking with Rob Law, Executive Officer of the CVGA, or the Central Victorian Greenhouse Alliance. We're going to be talking today about alliances and collaborations between local councils, and I promise it's not as boring as it sounds. After years of careful and persistent efforts of the CVGA, they have been instrumental in helping over 13 councils in Victoria come together. As ever, before we begin, I would like to acknowledge that Saltgrass is produced on Jarrah Country. Jarrah Country is the traditional home of the Jarjarung people, who have been the custodians and caretakers of this land for tens of thousands of years. Always was, always will be Aboriginal land. Salt of the earth people. Grassroots change. Salt grass. Ready. <laughs> okay, we were ready. We were ready. So, this is very exciting. Because I've been listening to your podcast a lot. I guess it's time to introduce you, Alison Hanley, or Ali, as we're going to call you in this chat. And your podcast is called Saltgrass. And can you tell us a bit about what Saltgrass means and, and where that kind of original kernel of the idea came for you with the podcast? Yeah, well, it's interesting. It was something I sort of sat on for a couple of years before I made it happen. And I was tossing around names and all sorts of things. And I don't know, I, I, the very first series I did, which was kind of like the pilot project was back in 2018. And I got some local council funding. It was like three grand or something. And I made eight episodes just to kind of test the idea, see if there was enough stories locally to talk about. Turns out there's more than enough stories. <laughs> um, and also to test myself. So I've come from a community radio background and my local station um, was able to auspice that grant and I made the eight episodes for Main FM. And yeah, it sort of was back then I called it an environment for change because I was trying to like play with words and see how to get environment and climate change and all of that stuff 
in the title. And then by the time I got round to actually getting a second round of funding from the Community Broadcasting Foundation, um, and they funded the bigger project that it's become, I think I realised that there were heaps and heaps and heaps of things out there playing with that kind of wording. And so I wanted something completely different and something that wasn't something a bit about the natural world, really. And so saltgrass is an actual plant that we have in Australia. It's quite rare, but it's out there. And it's a plant that can survive in really saline soils and can be um, an important species to stabilise soils when there's a lot of degradation and erosion and things like that. And so for me, on lots of levels, the name then started to really work as what are people doing at a grassroots level about climate change and how can, you know, salt of the earth people in regional and rural Australia, because a lot of the climate movement is city-based and then there becomes this city-country divide. And I feel like there's heaps happening and there's heaps of people who care about the risks of climate change in the regions, but it's not that well known or that well that's really interesting. You know. So it's kind of like, it's almost like, sounds as if you were making it for the movement to make sure that the movement, because it's so exciting and there's so many parts to it, are reflected. But I mean, that's also a question. Who was your top of mind kind of audience member? Or were there were there multiple that you thought would be really hungry for something like this? Yeah. So I started out really just thinking about my local radio station and its reach. <laughs> I knew I wanted to make it a podcast, but I, I didn't know how far that would go. Um, but I wanted it to be available for people to listen to after because your one hour slot on a radio station, once that goes to air, it's over. No one can listen to it anymore. So I really like the idea of people being able to find it later and listen when they were ready to, which is the beauty of podcasting. Um, but I think I knew that we had quite a rich local community around climate action and so I knew there were quite a few stories locally but I after I'd made that first series I started working for the local sustainability group to really get in the mix and find out what was happening and be part of what was happening and then I really saw how much was going on and how many people were working on so many different levels to make change happen yeah. totally yeah I I remember that I was listening to an episode of yours today uh and someone mentioned wicking beds and I was like, cool, I know what wicking beds are. But then I realized I only knew that about 10, like 10 months ago, max. And so you actually clarified that. And I think that that's so helpful because, you know, people aren't taking out their dictionary <laughs> the whole time they're listening to a podcast. So yeah, it was really, really accessible. And I feel like you might've even helped your guests to speak in a more accessible way. Cause a lot of them have kind of scientific chops and, and kind of, you know, policy and, chops and stuff like that but you've managed to make it really accessible is that something that you yeah, needed to interesting. work on um i think ultimately i wasn't i wasn't making it for people who are already convinced or who are heavily involved in climate action because i think they already know all the stuff like the knowledge around climate has been around for a long time but it's it's reaching the people who are not resistant or climate deniers, because I think that's a whole other demographic that's really hard to reach, but the people who are just living their daily lives but maybe feel like it's not to do with them or it's someone else will solve it or it's a bigger problem than what they can handle. So they just get on with life. But actually they're the sort of people who really care and would care if they knew more about it. <laughs> so I sometimes actually I work, um, you know, another job, as we all do, and I often think about my workmates and what, 
we, we just chat as we work. And so I often hear their attitudes and their feelings about things. And, and I think about them when I'm making an episode to try and explain it to people who don't know all the stuff. Like, so sometimes you've really got to give the context because people who know it often, there's a little bit of jargon and there's a little bit of, you know, shorthand. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, exactly. How do you, um, especially when you have guests who might be quite qualified to talk on a certain subject and, and may bring with them a lot of jargon because that's the world they live in. Um, and we're talking about concepts that can be quite complex. Like for example, the most recent one of yours I've listened to is kind of about soil and like the, the soil carbon sponge. And there's so many things that go into that, that are quite scientific. It's quite hard to pass and it's quite hard to make accessible for, for an audience who just glimpsed it. And only only through their ears. So how do you kind of make it make sure that it's accessible and, and make sure that it's something that if if someone in your community was to get it, they wouldn't feel excluded? Yeah, I think that's actually really important to me to I've always been the kind of person who doesn't like to be exclusive or elitist or use language that isn't I don't know, it is it's always just bugged me, but when people do that. But um I think with Jess, I was very lucky. Jess is the soil expert you were talking about. And she she is a science communicator. So I think part of her job is to explain things well. But I think I always I do always just go back to thinking as someone's talking, I might just cut in and say, oh, so what's that about? Just trying to always remember who, who could be listening, who might not understand. And, and if you talk about too much stuff that like one or two things could get by and people will keep listening. But if you're constantly talking that way anyone who doesn't understand it all will just switch off because it's meaningless to them so I think in order to keep an audience and to make it as accessible as possible and ultimately we're trying to talk to people about one of the most important issues of our time (laughs) and so we need to keep them with us (laughs) yeah we need to keep people with us so yeah that's kind of what I'm always yeah I'm kind of always trying to think of that in the background. Yeah, I was going to ask Ali, you um when you said you you were wondering whether there are enough stories around locally. What what how did you define local when you were starting around stories and people to be listening in? Was it just around Castlemaine or the regions or... Yeah, well it's really interesting. I think the beauty of podcasting is that anyone can listen from anywhere. But also, as opposed to community radio where you don't know who's listening, with podcasting, you can actually see how many people have downloaded or listened to an episode. And you can also see where they're from. <laughs> so <laughs> I got mentioned in the New York Times really randomly. Like I had no idea how that happened or why. But um, but happened earlier this year and instantly there was a spike in the US and around the world of people listening outside of Australia. There'd been trickles, but predominantly had been Australian listeners and and more specifically Victorian listeners because that's where I'm located but yeah once that happened I really saw I've got probably as many listeners in the US now as I do in Australia and my numbers across Europe and a few other places have increased as well so it's really it's really interesting and then from that I'm assuming from that I don't know how but I got approached to enter the Jackson Wilde Award this year and then I, I submitted to that and became a finalist in that, which is traditionally a filmmaking environmental award, but they've only just opened it up to podcasting. And so, you know, these things, they just sort of, I don't know how they happen, but it, it rolls on, you know, it's, it's really interesting. <laughs> the, the, the world of the internet. <laughs> That's incredible. Yeah. And I feel like the, the um, American 
part of your audience is, is going to be really interesting because, you know, all through the world, but especially in America, there's a lot of people who are realizing we need to live differently. We need to live better. And your podcast for me is this really great kind of cross section where it's not just climate change and it's not just looking at it from an issues based perspective. It's kind of giving you the, the understanding of how natural processes work and how community works and how politics works and all of these different elements, but it's done in a really friendly way and a really accessible way. And so I feel like it, it, it's almost like your podcast is that community that I've wanted to find. And those people that I want to know exist and are out there doing their thing and, and, are, and are committed and are in it and being creative and pushing past roadblocks. That is so nice to hear. That's amazing. <laughs> that makes me feel really good. Thanks. <laughs> well, for people who are, who are looking for a podcast episode of yours to listen to, do you have any favorites and do you have any sort of things that you feel like encapsulate your what you what you like about your podcast? One episode or two episodes actually that really stand out for me. And I had no idea it would become this when I started the process of these two interviews. But it's with John Reed, who's a sourdough baker. And I'd known him for a long time uh, in my community and I'd worked for him in the past. And he had a very serious diagnosis and he's subsequently passed away actually. But I approached him saying, oh my God, now's the time to talk to you because clearly his health was at a very significant point. And so we had an interview, just talked about his life as a baker, but he's also been really instrumental in leading or being part of a movement called Grains. So I did one episode about him and his bakery and what he's been doing. And then another episode with a bunch of people from Grains who I wouldn't have had access to or thought to interview without him. And I think that those two episodes together really, because a lot of people talk about, you know, how to live more sustainably, how to not you know, how to not subscribe to the economy as it is, but develop alternative economies and things like that. But a lot of it's really theoretical, but he's been living it and those guys are all living it. And for me, it made it really real and it made me really believe that it's actually possible. So on a personal level, as much as I talk about this stuff all the time, a lot of it's theoretical and a lot of it's like, oh, what we need to do and what we should all be doing. But these people have been living it and totally. it really gave me hope. Awesome. Yeah. Well, in that case, we'll leave it with a thank you. Thank you so much for making the podcast and thank you so, thank you so much for making the time to talk with me and Jess today. Thanks. <laughs> Join us for part two next week. All of us in one way or another do an acknowledgement of country at the start of every The Climactic Collective. Collective.